Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 27. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide, and in 1999, I founded the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident outdoors by using traditional skills, a few simple tools, and field-based experience. Whether you're looking to go from city slicker to competent outdoor professional, want to experience a remote expedition, or just want to learn a few new outdoor skills, we've got you covered. You can check out the show notes to this and all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. When you're there, click on the podcast button. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Lastly, the best way to keep up with our programs and trips is to join our email newsletter. And you can do that at jmbnews.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft podcast. I'm your host, Tim Smith, and I am sitting here in the kitchen of my good friend, Jeff Butler, of Northwoods Survival fame here in, uh, are we in Glassville? Where are we? Yeah, Glassville. Glassville, yeah. New Brunswick. Yeah, no, Knowlesville, Glassville, Juniper. We're sort of in the Tri-City area? <laughs> yes, the Tri-City area. We're on New Brunswick. <laughs> uh, and we are enjoying a nice uh, winter wonderland here. It's We're recording this on November 11th, and we got this tongue of cold air and snow that came down and it's it's like it's the middle of winter outside you know can't see any bare ground it's all covered with snow and windy i think it's 20 below yeah celsius with the wind sure celsius is the now in america we refer to that as the canadian scale and we keep hoping you guys in the rest of the world we came up with this great invention called the imperial system and we're hoping that everybody starts to get on board. It's a lot simpler. It's not based on round numbers and stuff like it, you guys. It's like you guys in the Paris Climate Accord. <laughs> you know, you're the only country that's that's in step and hasn't signed on yet. Hopefully, the rest of the world will get up, you know, get up to speed. With Is you. that like the Paris Hilton did what? <laughs> I'm here all week trying to fish. So we're going to be chatting today about, uh, first of all, we're going to learn a little bit about Jeff and his background, and then we're going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, a conversation that we've had around the campfire many times, kind of the myth of the instant expert and the overnight instructor. But anyway, Jeff and I go way back, I, it was a 2004 I think it was Tim. 2004 we met, and and since that initial meeting, have spent lots of time together in the summer and the winter in the forest, uh, taught courses together, traveled around, and just had a pretty pretty good, fun-filled, uh, yeah. fun-filled time, lots of good adventures. So. Yeah, it has been. Some of the best times of my life, I have to admit, you know, it's been a lot of fun. I honestly wish I could remember more of them, too. <laughs> Yes, those days are kind of over for me. I learned I can't drink responsibly. <laughs> anyway, so tell me a little bit about your background, right? Or tell our tell our audience a little bit about your background. Where do you come from? What's your you know what you spent twenty years doing a different job and, and yeah, so fill me in on that. Yeah, well, I'm I was uh, born and raised in a small town just uh, south of Calgary, Alberta, High River, Alberta, and uh, just kind of lived the normal 
rural small town Alberta kid fly fishing and running around the bush and you know just doing that sort of stuff I joined the military the the Canadian Army in 1985 and I spent 20 years with uh, a unit called Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry I spent uh, five years with uh, the Canadian Airborne Regiment with two airborne commando and uh, and I, I guess the la I ended up in New Brunswick here. As my last five years was an instructor at the School of Infantry and was the what they called a subject matter expert for dismounted operations. And, and so essentially put young officer cadets through their basic training for their one of the last phases of their training and, and retired here in, in uh, 2004 and was looking for a you know what I was I was only 40 at the time and looking wondering what I was going to do and and I thought I'd really like to guide I always loved being outside and and uh and that's actually how I searched your company out Jack Mountain Bushcraft and and you were running a uh it was one of your first guide training courses I think and and I signed up and you and I went off with uh Another guy from England. Was there just one other person on that course? Yeah, yeah, from Bob. England? Yeah, Bob, yeah. And uh, you and I became fast friends after that. And the rest is history, you know. we You kind of brought me into the fold. And, and we started teaching together. And, and it's been been doing that ever since, pretty much. So you had a business. Um, after the military, you ran kind of a, a bushcraft survival instruction company. Um, that's right Northwood yeah Northwood survival I had a company called Northwood survival and I had that up until probably two years ago year and a half ago um, and in that company I started like a lot of instructors teaching bushcraft basic bushcraft skills that morphed into more survival training like modern survival sort of stuff search and rescue ground search and rescue kind of training um, and I did a little stint. I moved to Yukon in 2007, I think it was the, the fall of 2007 and spent a winter, um, as a dog handler in Yukon for a, for an Iditarod and Yukon Quest musher up there and moved back to New, New Brunswick when that was done. And, and I actually brought sled dogs out of Yukon then and, and built my own team. And uh, then pretty much strictly ran dog mushing trips in the winter. That was sort of the the lion's share of my income was 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 dog mushing. And but I still taught bushcraft in the in the summer. So you yeah. kind of lived the dream that I'm sure some people out here listening to us now was it a 14 by 14 foot log cabin? That's in, right. In the Yukon, off the grid. You know, mm -hmm. that's what I'm sure. There's there's probably somebody out there listening to this in a in a cubicle somewhere in a high rise in some urban area or on their way to that who would sort yeah. of idealize that life of you know away from it all and yeah uh, so how was that experience i'm sure it was a lot of work but it you know what it, it's funny tim i hear that a lot i loved it obviously and and uh, in the military you know you, you spend a lot of time living all over the world and living in tents and and that sort of thing so living rough wasn't a big shock but but I mean people I often hear that from people like how did you live a winter in the Yukon without power running water in an outhouse and and 
and it must have been so hard and, and complicated. And I look at it exactly opposite. It was actually really easy when you strip life down to the very elemental level of, of all those things. Like a hot water tank blowing up in January is complicated. Having to poop in an outhouse isn't that complicated. Like I find living in a modern home Kind of not that this house is that modern, but with power and, and indoor plumbing and stuff, that stuff's complicated. Living in a 14 by 14 cabin isn't all that complicated. It's pretty pretty easy, actually. You know, you don't feed the stove. You're not warm. You, you don't haul your water. You're not drinking water. And, and it, it's actually, I find it pretty easy. Yeah, I'm yeah. the same way. I, yeah. Half the year, a little more than half the year at our field school, we're off the grid and I'm in a 16 by 20 foot cabin, so the lap of luxury compared to you guys in the 14 yeah. by 14s. But, but the same thing, right? There's nothing to break. There's so few moving parts and moving pieces, and that's that's the draw. That's exactly it, and that's 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 the that's the truth behind it, Tim. I found it. Yeah, I found it really easy. Of course, there are inconveniences, but you just learn to work around them, and you and you get on with it. But but is I remember when I came out of Yukon and and I rented a house here in New Brunswick. Uh, I bought some land out here while I was in Yukon and and uh, I rented a house and walking into that house and it wasn't a big house and but it seemed very big and it was it was a little weird you know just walking in and go wow you just have to turn this light switch on and all of a sudden you know you're not lighting lanterns and phone up with naphtha and, and kerosene and that sort of thing. It was, it was a bit of a transition, but but uh, I loved it. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. I really would. Yeah, the weirdest thing for me after my first summer in Alaska was coming back and realized that people poop inside their house, right? Like, that's weird. Yeah. Why would you yeah, do that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, cool. So, yeah. So, mushing was your life for a number of years here. How many, you know, at... at your largest, how big was your dog yard? Um, <clears throat> well, in Yukon, it wasn't my dog yard. I was working for another musher named William Cleden. And at that time, William, it, I think at the most at any one time, maybe 60 dogs, 65 dogs. And here, at the height of uh, Northwood survival, I would say I probably had anywhere from 28 to 30 dogs you know and sometimes that would include puppies you know I raised a lot of my own dogs did my own breeding and and uh had Alaskan huskies um and also had Inuit sled dogs that I got from up north and started a breeding program with Inuit dogs as well nice yeah cool so yeah as you can kind of tell from listening to Jeff's background he's Lots and lots of years running around in remote areas all over the world. The last 15 or 20 years, maybe exclusively in Canada. And to a much smaller extent, like a few weekends here and there in the northeastern United States. And we won't bore you with, damn, I was there stories. But we've got a few, a few colorful stories that uh, if you ever chase either one of us down around a campfire, we'll fill you in on. But probably not meant for the general public. No, that, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so last night, uh, we sat down and watched this awesome documentary that, that, that Jeff has um, about the history of the Iditarod. And we were both kind of struck by how 
as the race became more popular, as the sport kind of went from its adolescent phase to maybe its more mature adult phase in like competitive mushing, that the, the sort of person who would participate uh, changed dramatically. And, you know, we launched into probably an hour-long discussion about how that as a metaphor in kind of the, the outdoor, the bushcraft, uh, or survival industry, you know, the same thing has sort of taken place. Whereas in the early days, they had, they interviewed a bunch of these old guys who were, who was, one of the guys was like, and I heard about this race, so I mushed my dogs 250 miles to the highway, and a friend picked me up and you know, drop yeah, me off exactly. and I ran the race. So <clears throat> he had been just running his trap line. So, you know, as we sort of transition from the old guard in the outdoor industry to guys who were, you know, out working and living in the bush now to like professional, uh, you know, I call them outdoor, out celebrity outdoorsmen and whatnot, yeah. who just full time or, you know, promoting and, and, you know, doing things that aren't necessarily subsistence lifestyle or living out in remote areas, you know, the... Just those those sort of commonalities, or maybe that as a metaphor, uh, yeah. with regards to the, you know, we live in the era now of the the instant expert of a guy who would maybe take one course and then all of a sudden hangs his shingle, or you know, the kind of the overnight instructor. Whereas, you know, you represent someone who spent you know thirty plus years running around in remote areas, living living rough, as you say, um, and you know, what do you? How, yeah, it's, how do you see that? Yeah, it's funny, Tim. I noticed that, like, even teaching bushcraft, like, when I sort of got into the bushcraft scene, I didn't know a lot about it, and you introduced me to it, and that was still, you know, that was, I don't even know, I think that was 2004, so it was still kind of a, it's an industry now, but at that time, it didn't seem like that, and I could be, because I didn't know a lot about it, maybe it was more of an industry that I knew, but I mean, like, there was... Were there even TV shows about it? Like, I mean, Les Stroud. Because well, I, I remember when, know, the, when Survivor aired. Was, yeah, <laughs> like it was the very first, you know, that sort of era. I don't think there were, like was Ray Mears must have been around. He must have, but did he have TV shows? I don't know. Or, I don't know either, Tim. But, but, uh, but it was kind of a new industry. And it, yeah, it has, I'm, I'm amazed now at what it's kind of, I don't know if, Blossom is is the right word, but it has everybody sort Fe of hanging. Fester, in. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fester is maybe more like it that that uh, there isn't a real. There's a lot of information out there, and I think that's everybody has a YouTube channel. And I don't have a TV, right? So I don't know what's on TV for if there are shows about. There must be shows about it, but uh, um, everybody has a YouTube channel, and and I look at it. There's there's a lot of information, but there's no, there isn't a lot of knowledge or a real depth of knowledge or a real wisdom behind it. Or, a, you know, I don't know how to how to articulate it, but I'll, you know, you you'll see somebody or how many hand drill fires have we got going? You know, you knock a coral out with a piece of mullein or or whatever the case may be, and there's a misconception that that is that's a skill, obviously, but there's no real place for it in my life, you know, living in the bush and, and I can do it and I enjoy fire and firecraft and all the aspects about it. But, but I look at those as kind of party tricks, you know, they really are like there. And, and there are, there are a lot of instant experts out there that are being made now. And, and it's more about 
how many followers you have on Instagram or or or, or YouTube that that uh, that I think that holds a little more weight than than needs be you know it, it it's it's a lot of posing for photos it's a lot of pictures of gear and and but I really don't see a, a real depth of knowledge and I even see that with some of the students that that come through that yeah, I don't know, and I don't want to bash the industry. It is an industry, and I've and then I've kind of backed away from it because of that. I I never got into it for that. It was always a lifestyle for me, and now it's not really a lifestyle. There are people that, you know, live in the suburbs. Everybody's got to be somewhere. I'm not knocking living in the suburbs. I luckily I've never really had to do that. But uh, you know, their their experiences going out on the weekends and and you know setting up a lean-to and taking some photos and, and, you know, splitting some wood with your $200 axe and, and then going back and putting it on Instagram. And, and that's kind of what uh, passes for knowledge now. And, and I just don't see it that way. I don't know about you, but... No, I'm in complete agreement you know. in that the, you know, I've said, I think I've said it publicly, that I fear that depth of knowledge is dying and that we're left with this sort of this veneer of you know people have a, a big sheet when they want to check off all the boxes on the sheet they're like winter camping spent a night out check did that yeah you know friction fire check did that and you know i think what you're left with is sort of a hodgepodge of skills but not that real depth of experience that's kind of represented by the old guard mm -hmm. and, and it you know what what we try to counteract through our programs is to provide some of that deep knowledge deep yeah. time out um in doing so but and i guess it depends on how you're looking at all this too you know if it's just your hobby then go for it you know like like spend a weekend getting fires going by hitting the back of hacksaw blades onto onto quartz you know and and doing that that there's nothing wrong with that but i i think there's a problem with starting a wilderness school or 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 such and but yeah not having that depth of knowledge and i'm not the be all end all i don't like we were discussing last night i can't you know i don't know all the plants that are best for making cordage out of i know how to make cordage out of spruce root or or reverse wrapping a spiral cut t-shirt or whatever you know but but I'm no expert in it. I don't, you know, I've never made a fishing net or, or that sort of thing. Um, but I find the best woodsmen or woods people or are the people that know how to sharpen a chainsaw, know how to troubleshoot a, you know, a, a, a snow machine that's gone down, but also know how to use a knife and know half a dozen really solid bush knots and don't have to think about them and just tie them up and and know how to paddle a canoe and know how to you know tie a canoe onto a canoe rack like there it's it's a it's a wide range of skills that i feel you have to have or that are good to have what you know who cares what i think but for myself that i look at myself i go yeah i'm a I'm more woodsman than a bushcraft instructor, a survival instructor. I just, I'm just kind of an all-round guy. I can drive a team of dogs, or I can run a power saw, or I can, you know, I can split a log by knocking wedges off with the back of a Scandi grind knife, and you know, and using a baton and splitting a piece of wood. Like, 
and doing all those things, or at least having some sort of knowledge of all those things and having applied them. You know, where I live, I, I use an axe and a knife all the time. I'm tying knots constantly. I just, I live that life, you know. And, and uh, For those of you in podcast land, Jeff is holding an axe in one hand, a knife in the other right now, and he's gesturing with <laughs> both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pointing them at me. <laughs> but then I don't want to, you know, it's also, I don't want to sit here and pontificate about, you know, you're not this if you don't know how to do this. Or I'm trying to be the exact opposite of that because I think that's what's happening in the industry now. It's like a good friend of ours, Donnie Cavellis at Four Dog Stove, you know, Don and I have talked about that a few times that it's also, there's almost a uniform that has to be worn now. If you're not, if you're not cutting fuzz sticks or feather sticks with a $150 finish made knife, then you're not doing it the right way. If you're not wearing $150 Scandinavian pants with, you know, with reinforced knees, you're not, you're, you obviously don't know anything about bushcraft because that's what everybody's wearing. If you're not, aren't those pants like 500 bucks? I have no Somebody idea. told me there's like a $500 pair of pants. Really? I'm like, I think if you added up all the clothes I've owned for the last 15 years, it's like 200 bucks total. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I, I stopped being able to afford Carhartts when the Tragically Hip started wearing them in music videos, and then everybody else started wearing them. The, the price of them jumped $25 a pair. They used to, we used to be embarrassed to wear Carhartts. Now they're all the rage, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but so, yeah, I don't want to be that guy either that says, you know, if you don't know how to run a snow machine then you don't know anything about the bush but but I do see the I've kind of backed away from the industry I got rid of my website and whatnot just to I don't want to be I don't have the the energy or the interest to get into the the it's a it's a competitive industry now and I don't like the fact that it is kind of an industry but there again, who cares what I like and what I don't like? Just for me personally, it, it's not an interest. People want to learn from me, great. And I and I, I fill courses and I do a lot of teaching around and, and get contracted out. And I've, you know, I've taught from everywhere, from Angava Bay to Nuvik to, to Minnesota to, to everywhere with just kind of teaching skills. But, but yeah, I've, I've kind of... Yeah, I've kind of backed away from it a little bit and because it, I'm not sure where it's going and I don't want to really be a part of what I see of it. But I don't want to knock it either. It's good to see young people getting out and understanding the bush. And I think bushcraft is good that way that from an environmental aspect, you know, you start thinking twice about trees and whatnot when you learn what they can really do for you and, mm -hmm. and, and all that. And I think that is a, a really big part of it and it's good to, to see young people up doing doing that sort of stuff so if that's what they get out of it then that's that's super yeah i think i have you know. complete agreement with you there yeah you know like it did i there again you know some of the the best people i know in the bush and some of the most environmentally minded people i know in the bush are guys that i've trapped with and people that are, are detached from that environment would think oh what a cruel you know to hunt an animal or trap an animal is very cruel and and but i mean these guys are in the bush they understand the bush they understand what clear cutting's doing they you know they understand that sort of stuff and and uh i don't know where it's going with that point but but it's 
It's uh, if the if the if it's getting if this industry is getting people under the bush and and understanding the bush a bit better and and then that's good because the more the younger generation is is living on their computer and they don't have that connection well then that just leaves it wide open for industry or for whoever to do whatever they do with their natural resources and i think that's a slippery slope yeah wholeheartedly agree that anything that gets people out is good and we protect what we understand and that's it that's we it. protect what we enjoy and what we love and if if people are too busy updating a snap gram instant yeah. twitter feed yeah making their eyes big on uh on the on snapchat yeah you know, while you're yeah, you're lighting a friction fire. Agreed that it's it's a tragedy that people know 800 emoji characters but can't recognize the trees in the yard. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, well that's, that's you and I could easily get off on rant. We could just do a <laughs> rant podcast for about two hours. The ra- welcome to the rant zone. <laughs> exactly. Just get a 40 rum and spin the spin the top off it and step on it. Won't be needing that. Hit record. <laughs> So we were talking that you you may be working, you know, starting a new chapter, uh, doing well, some kind of uh, some sort of, of cultural tourism. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm thinking of. Well, I'm getting a little long in the tooth now, and I'm 53, and and you know I've spent a number of years sleeping on on the ground and on thermorests and stuff, and I and I. I still want to be involved with getting people out into the bush and, and doing that sort of thing. So I'm thinking of uh, starting a, I don't even know what I'd call it, but I think I would call it like almost a cultural, a northern cultural liaison kind of company. So people that would want to, you know, go do a cultural trip with the Cree up north or with the Inuit, um, they would they would come to me and say, you know, I've got a group of people that want to come and do this, or I want to do this individually, and um, how much would it cost to get me into, you know, a Kaluit or or up into Ojibugamu or or Namaska, these other areas, you know, and and just experience that, and instead of instead of someone having to do that on their own, like, well, okay, like, can you drive to these communities? Are there, you know, do I have to fly in? If I fly in, where do I have to fly out of to get to this community and, and arrange transport? They could come to myself and I would arrange all that and put a price tag on it and say, let's go do it. Nice. Yeah. And yeah. I'll, I'll be your first customer. We do well, run trips I'll, up I there. totally expect to gouge you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Add 30% onto whatever it cost me to do it. <laughs> uh, one little bit of trivia you just reminded me of. What was the story? Um, what's the connection? Is it your grandfather and the mad trapper of Rat River? There was some. What was that? Uh, no, I had an uncle. My uncle. dad's. My Yeah, my dad's uh, brother, Eugene, Ted Butler. He went by uh, Ted. Uh, he went into Great Bear Lake in the 20s he went up there and and i think he was 20 uncle ted was born in 1901 i believe and he went up in 1920 into great bear lake and trapped and prospected and and um and so yeah he he his connection i guess with the mad trapper he he never had any really anything to do with uh the mad trapper was that 
Wap May, who played a, a big role in the story of the Mad Traveler, he was sort of one of the original Canadian bush pilots up there. And uh, Wap May was used in hunting down the Mad, Mad Trapper. The RCMP had used him to kind of fly, fly around and locate him in the Richardson Mountains. But Uncle Ted um, knew Wap May just because Wap May would, would fly a lot of the trappers into Great Bear at that time. And, and Wap May made a little money on the side by, I can't remember how much it would cost, but you could pay Wap May, you know, at the time, maybe a dollar or five dollars, and Wap May would take you up in his old. I don't know what kind of plane he even flew. Like, I think it was a biplane in those days, you know, like a World War One kind of. Wap May, I think, was accredited with shooting down the Red Baron. And, oh, okay. Yeah, know you know, that. like that night. And he's like an icon in Canadian history. And, and so that's how, now I guess that would be my Uncle Ted's. But he had some great stories. Like, for Uncle Ted to be alive, but he was a man as a young kid. He worked, he, he met my Annie Kay, who was... Her father was a very well-known um, guide, a uh, riverman out of uh, Fort Smith, Northwest Territories. And he actually took Seton on the, the founder of the Boy Scouts of America. Seton, yeah. Seton, yeah. He took him and he, he wrote a book called uh, On the Barrens or something, looking for the woodland caribou or whatever. And he hired, I guess he would be my, my uh, uncle through marriage and, and spent six months on the land with with my uncle and uh, my Annie Kay, so my uncle Ted's wife, you know, my Annie Kay, her father took took him around and, and that sort of stuff. But So he had some amazing stories that spending in the 20s and 30s prospecting up north and and uh, and then moving to Yellowknife and, and working for Consolidated Mining there. And he worked in a fishing camp, managing a fishing camp. And I remember when they came out of the north and and moved back to Calgary, you'd go to my Uncle Ted's house, and he had, I think at that time he had like the world, he had caught the world record lake trout, and it was small by today's standards, but I think it was almost a 60 pound fish, that he, and he had it mounted on his wall, and he was also really big into collecting rock samples, and he had a rock tumbler, and, and he had arrowheads that he had found when he was prospecting, and, and he had a brownie camera, and and he was one of the few he had some of his photos are in the Glenmo Museum in Calgary now and, and uh just to be able to spend time with a guy like that when I was, you know, twelve, thirteen years old and and uh just amazing the photos that he that he had of, of trapping and hunting and running dogs up north at that time and and uh then those guys are you know, those those skills are or those people are almost gone now, you know. It's, and it's really important not trying to promote what I'm trying to do, but what you're doing as well when you go up with Dave and Anna, you know, up into Ojibugamu and just spend some time in the land with these people. It's it's so important, you know. And, and uh, I'm on record and will say again and again that the, one of my issues with kind of the modern outdoor industry is that people always want to teach skills and they constantly use the word skills and skills as if they exist in a vacuum. But really, they all exist in a cultural context. So, like, if I go make a bow drill fire and uh, one time, I would say that's a skill. But if I light a bow drill fire every day in order to cook my food and, and whatever, you know, if you do something every day, that's culture. So, you know, I think that we've, we've taken uh, culture cut it up into tiny little bits and that's the skills that people are 
mm-hmm. trying to learn now that that you know it's only when they all come together as a whole that mm-hmm. that you really get an insight into the way well, that these people lived. And you know, another thing I always bring up to to uh, students or clients, and you know, you you and I have done this a number of times. There's no mystery left in a bow drill fire. You know, we're don't want to get cocky, but there's a pretty good chance when you get it set together, you're going to be able to knock a coal out, and and you're getting paid money to teach this sort of stuff. And and when I teach people things, whether it's reverse wrapping, whatever you know, or or whatever the case may be, the 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 the, the skills that we do teach, I always tell people I didn't invent any of this. It's not like I'm, you know teaching you anything like don't I, I i try to be as humble as i can be about it i'm not i'm not in the inventor of any of these things i'm just passing this information along and and i think that gets lost too with some of the newer you know maybe some of the newer instructors and and that sort of thing that you're just you're just the carrier of that skill now you didn't invent it you know there's nothing new we're not teaching anything new I, and any, anything that gets taught that's new? I, I always claim that I invented fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But any any skill that gets invented the new or any piece of gear that, that is supposed to be a big improvement on what was being used a hundred years ago usually turns out to be a piece of crap anyway. You know, like it's like there's so many like how many books are out there that you flip through and there's some really good books out there, but there are some other things out there that you just go Man, I can't believe we're still teaching that, or that people think that's a good skill. And the only people that are teaching it are people that don't actually use that stuff in the bush for real. Because when you do start using it in the bush for real, a lot of it doesn't work. Yeah. You know? But works great for a weekend, but that gets back to it's a party trick at that point, right? It's yeah. kind of neat. For sure. I know I'm trying to curb my rant i'm trying not to get off on a rant and totally alienate everybody from jack mountain bushcraft and Northwood survival oh it's all good though People yeah like a good rant is yeah. it it cleanses the soul it does right? sometimes like, yeah. you just get so yeah you know, but like for example how long have they been teaching you know collecting water by digging the big pit in the ground and putting a piece of plastic over it with a rock in the middle and a tin can underneath it and that's how you're going to collect your water and then i still see people people will ask me about that and i go like if i have no water the last thing i'm doing is going hey i've got a good idea let's spend the next eight hours digging a big hole in the ground you know that'll that'll help hydrate us (laughs) and then put a piece of plastic you know like it just but you, how many books still have that in it? Yeah, you yeah. know, it's Agreed. like 1945 Air Force survival manual stuff. And but that's information; it's not knowledge, right? Yeah, you know, that's that gets back to our our original point, you know. And there's so many things like that out there that, that just are, they sound great in the book, but they sure just they don't do. work. And they they work for a week. If you just plan your whole weekend course around. We're going to build like a solar still, that kind of solar still. Well, you and I could make one right now, and then we'd get a few drops of water to sort of, you know, proof of concept. But if mm-hmm. you're really dehydrated, you're that's going right. to die as a result yeah, of digging right. a big hole in that's the hot right. sun. That's right. There are just so many myths out there. And, and I know when I'm teaching survival, like actual modern kind of survival stuff, that I spend probably a good hour just doing a lecture on okay let's dispel some myths here you know let's let's what actually kills us in the bush you know it's not 
if you watch a survival show, if you watch, a, you'd think the, the first thing that's going to kill you is that you're going to starve to death. You know, well, that's just a fallacy. That isn't the case. Nobody starves in the bush. People die of dehydration or they die from an injury they sustained or they die, they, they die of hypothermia or hyperthermia. You know, they die. That's how you die in the bush. You don't, you don't starve to death. But if you read a book about or you watch zombies... Oh, zombie! Well, that, but I mean that goes without saying. Okay. You always can. You always consider a zombie attack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know. But I mean that you just know it, 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 it is like that. You know, people always they'll want to come and they'll want to do a okay on survival. Are we going to learn traps? And I go, no, of course we're not going to learn traps. Like, what do you think we're over ninety percent of all survival situations are over in four days? Like, I'll tell you what we're going to learn. We're going to learn how to stay hydrated. Keep our core temperature at 37 degrees Celsius and and uh, get out of the elements, you know, and, and that's what we're going to learn. Like if you want to you want to go try to build a deadfall trap and think you're going to save yourself by killing a squirrel and eating a squirrel, well, you know, that's why I'll spend an hour going, okay, let's just boil it down to what we really need to learn. And it's not sexy, you know, there's nothing too sexy about it. And and that's where I think we have to differentiate between survival and bushcraft as well. You know, survival, bushcraft and camping. You know, they're they all kind of touch, they all draw skills, but they're very delineated. You know, there has to be a real delineation between survival and bushcraft. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh friend of mine says that we're tbh in our culture are trained by hollywood right yeah so everybody yeah. knows as a result of all the ridiculous tv shows that have been out there and you know uh, full disclosure i've been involved in some of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah. people have this skewed idea you know that's been kind of drummed up by by tv producers in order to have more drama and make a better tv show about what it takes to to not die in the forest and and like you say, most of those things that everybody just knows now after a decade of reality TV programming, most of what everybody knows is just wrong. Yeah. You know, and to, to quote or maybe paraphrase, because I'll probably butcher it, uh, the, the late great Mark Twain, of he said, uh, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know that ain't so. So, yeah, yeah these days with the preponderance... Yeah. Uh, of, of people who know everything, but maybe they're just, they really know nothing because of their knowledge is based on something that's not real. Yeah. And the, even those TV shows now, I used to get pretty wrapped around the axle about when, you know, when you'd see stuff, I might watch an episode on YouTube or something and go, oh, that's crap, you know, like, and, but I don't anymore. I just go, you know what? I don't even look at it as part of bushcraft or survival. It's just, it's entertainment now. It's that it's strictly entertainment. There are no skills you're not gaining. If you want to just sit down and watch some fun TV, watch one of those shows. But um, but it has nothing to do with reality. There are shows out there. There was, and you get asked. I don't know. You must get asked. I get asked all the time to go participate in these shows. Like I had uh, when I was new, naked and afraid it was a show I've never seen. And I was like, really? Like I used to work for them. I used to interview all the people. Yeah, I was. I was thinking like, why? <laughs> Has television really come to that, that they'd want to see my 53-year-old naked body on on television? Like, is that really what it's well, come to? they say to? there's somebody for everybody. I guess. At least one I person. Guess. What was the other show we were talking about just yesterday that you said uh, we were talking about uh, 
where people go on oh alone oh yeah yeah like i've never even heard of that show i don't know i don't know anything about it but. we've got a new uh we're working with a production company now and we've got a new show kind of in development and it's a it's a survival game show where the contestants are puppets and marionettes and it's also a musical <laughs> perfect <laughs> See, that's something I can get behind. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've burned up some time here. Yeah, we probably have. Yeah, so we'll. Uh, I guess we'll call it quits, but you can check out the show notes for links to Jeff's uh, Facebook and Instagram. And and thanks for, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me over. Tim, always a pleasure. We always have a good time. Always. Together. Yeah, hopefully you guys could, uh, you know, out in podcast land, could could uh, sense the, the laughter and the smiles that were going on mm-hmm. here. But, hey, thank you for listening. Um, if you like this show, leave us a review wherever you do. And, uh, and I just want to add that I may sound grouchy on the podcast, a little ranty, but I'm always, I always encourage if you have any questions or you want to get in touch with me, like... Obviously, feel free to shoot me a, you know, send me an email or like go to the show notes and find me. And I'm actually a pretty agreeable person. I just may have sounded a bit grumpier than I normally Yeah, we're just ranting over coffee. (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening. We'll catch you later.